Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. And today we are going to dip our toes into the world of music licensing, specifically sync licensing and stock music licensing. Now this is a source of income for musicians that you may not know about if most of your income has been coming from maybe teaching or from performing or doing gigs. Or perhaps you're a composer who's been working on commission and you're hoping to have a more passive income coming in as you're waiting between those jobs. And now like most things in the music world, there's a bit of a learning curve to this subject. So I've invited Eric Copeland from Make Music Income to come and give us a bit of an overview. And if you're interested in exploring the subject more, we'll give you some resources to help you get started and to really point you in the right direction to learn a lot about it. So a little bit about my guest, composer, arranger, and producer Eric Copeland has been working in Nashville, Tennessee, and Orlando, Florida for 20 years. His experience as a composer and producer has led to success in music licensing, leading music artists, and making full-time income from music for over 20 years. He is the owner of Make Music Income, a collection of websites and online channels dedicated to helping musicians navigate the world of music production, publishing, and licensing. So Eric, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Musicians vs. the World. Thanks. It's great to be here. Very excited. Yeah, great. I'm so glad that you came to be here. You actually just finished doing a live stream talking about this very thing, right? <laughs> yeah, we just, uh, I, I, I just felt like sometimes you just have to you know, uh, when you have a, a a podcast like you do, sometimes you just have to reintroduce what you're all about to the to your audience because maybe you've been doing a thousand different kinds of shows on different things. And so, I just did a live for an hour about, or more than an hour about, you know, is full time music income a myth? And just kind of going through all the income streams, right. uh, starting though with sync licensing and stock licensing because they are very, very popular right now. Right. Now I'm hoping that maybe you can explain a little bit for someone who has never heard of sync licensing or stock yeah. licensing. Can you give us mm -hmm. just a general overview about what those are? Sure. Well, sync licensing is probably the most attractive because that is getting your music into television shows, into uh, sports and into any kind of thing that's on television, uh, including Netflix and all the streaming services, getting your music into films, uh, feature films, independent films, any kind of film where uh, you would get paid upfront to put your music into a film, getting your music into advertising, which is where the real money really is, is getting your music into ads and into commercials and, and on in a Super Bowl commercial or something or an Apple commercial or something like that. That's where the big, big money is. And then also, though, there's other places like gaming, uh, video games um, are using uh, sync uh, things. Any, anything that is synced to picture, basically, is what we're talking about here. It's why it's called sync licensing. It's syncing some kind of music to to picture. So that is basically sync. Stock music, are we also defining stock right yes. now? Yeah. Stock sure. music is more, um, if you ever are familiar with going to a website to download a stock picture or a stock video to use in a presentation or something like that, Right alongside those is stock music for the same use. So especially you're going to see stock music be used on YouTuber sites, on podcasts, on corporate meetings and things that anytime someone has a need for a piece of music to use in um, not a television show or something like that, but use more 
locally more uh, on their YouTube channel. YouTube is probably the main use on Twitch, on any th kind of streaming platform or something where they need some music for the background music. That is going to be more like stock. So it's it's a, it's another kind of music licensing, very much like sync, but most of the time on the computer side of things and not on the television, film, and, and yeah. advertising side of things. Although they do cross over together a little bit. Sometimes you get sync and stock, you know, kind of uh, crossing over a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you do both, right? I do both. Mm -hmm. What got you started into this? What's your background? Well, uh, I've been a, a composer since I was 13. Um, I started figuring out I could write songs when I was uh, when I was a teenager, and and then I just became known for that. I I, I just started writing, 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 and it, and you know you kind of know when you're when you're young that you have a aptitude for something. And I was born right. in a very musical family. It was very normal to do music in our house. So it wasn't like, oh, what's he doing making songs? You know, about the only thing my mother would say is, do you have to keep playing the same thing over and over again? But, um, <laughs> and she was a piano teacher, so she knew uh, when she was <laughs> sick of hearing something, but, um, and church organist, and my dad was a led a band and stuff like that, in addition to working at IBM. So it, it was a very, very musical household. My brother was a drummer for 40 years, a pro drummer, and my uncle was a producer. So it's a very musical family. And so I just started writing songs all the time. And of course, in the dream at back then when I was writing, when I was a teenager, was to make me get a music publishing deal. That was my big right. dream, to get a music publishing deal. Maybe people listening to the podcast have always dreamed about that too. If I could only get my music heard by a music publisher, then maybe, just maybe, I might be able to get my music uh, you know, out to the world somehow. Right. And I kept trying that and, and I did meet publishers and stuff. Eventually I started um, making, you got to be careful with uh, what you try to do because I started making, you know, as good of demos and recordings as I could of my songs and made better ones as the years went by. And then suddenly people started coming to me, not for my songs, but for my music production. And and then I became a music producer for the next 20 years. Yeah. And that's what led me to Nashville. And and then I brought, I had clients coming to Nashville for a couple, well, they're still going to Nashville and recording. Right. So for over 20 years, I've had people going to Nashville and recording their music and uh, then helping them with music services and stuff as artists. But over the past about five or six years ago, I just I just really decided that I I wanted to get back to my roots a little bit. I uh, was getting into a master's degree at that time. I switched my master's, a music master's degree, over to composition. I was studying music history, which I'm also a nut about. But I I'm a composer, and and I was trying to get back to that side of me after 20 plus years of being a music producer for other composers and songwriters. Mm -hmm. I just decided that it was time for me to get back to that. And at that same time, I had listened to a podcast. Here we are on a podcast, but it all came from a podcast. I was listening to a podcast, and some lady was on there on someone else's show that I listen to all the time, and she was talking about this thing called sync licensing, about how she went from being an artist, a struggling artist, to really hearing about this and focusing on it and then getting uh, songs into places like Grey's Anatomy and TV shows and stuff like that and getting... Uh, stuff onto commercials and stuff and getting these gigantic paychecks. And it just kind of resonated with me for some reason. I just said, you know, this is really what I want to be doing. I want to be taking all the music that I've been creating for 20 years of, on my own and writing and focusing it towards this sync licensing thing. And here's the funny part. It's not just getting into TV shows, getting into films. 
It is literally the dream that I always had. I just did a video recently that said sync licensing is what you've always wanted because all I wanted when I was a, a starting songwriter was to get a music publishing deal. And that's exactly what a sync licensing deal is. It's a music publishing deal, except instead of with a music publisher, it's with a music library that is going to sign you to a music publishing deal and take exactly the same deal as you would sign with a music publisher, 50-50 split, and they work the song for you trying to get it into TV and film and into uh, other opportunities where the song can make money for both of you, which is exactly what a music publisher did. So I've come full circle and uh, over the past five years, I really focused and still focus on sync licensing. And then about two years ago, I started hearing about this stock music licensing side. Yeah. I write so many songs that there are plenty that aren't ready for television, aren't ready for movies, whatever. But they were good for stock. And I started kind of putting some of the stuff in there. And stock music is largely non-exclusive, which means you don't have to worry about uh, putting your personal music in there and then not being able to do what you want with it. You can You don't sign deals that are exclusive with your music. And you do that with sync. We can talk about that in a minute, but right. when we talk about the revenue streams, but this didn't let me. So I basically, anything I write that is not for sync licensing specifically, I'll throw in these stock music libraries because you never know. People use the weirdest things that you have and you just throw it in there and, and you can see the videos sometimes of what people have done with your music. And you're just like, I would have never thought that somebody <laughs> would use that track <laughs> to put in there. Uh, so uh, it's, it's really interesting. And so stock gives you a way to put a lot of music into possible other uses instead of just sitting on your hard drive. There's no reason that that production you made for your album 10 years ago needs to just be sitting in your garage somewhere on, a, on the other 500 CDs you didn't sell. You can be using it in some form of licensing. Right. Because there's so many different types of projects out there yeah. that need just an infinite number of different styles of music. Like it doesn't really matter what your genre of music is. There's always a project that needs something. Listen, I wrote a song for my mother's second wedding a few years, uh, about 10 years ago or so. And I've had the recording for a long time. I made a recording of it for her. And uh, a year or two ago, I decided it was just sitting on my drive. I just put it on these stock music sites. And I put the song up there and the track up there. Well, I got a call in the past five months or so or three months or so. And, and somebody said, hey, I want to use your this song that I downloaded from Motion Array, which is a stock music library, mm -hmm. in a documentary. Can I use it? And without paying royalties, I'm like, yeah, it's royalty free. So you can. And he says, cool. He goes, by the way, I looked you up and you're here in Orlando and I am too. I would love to like have lunch with you and show you the use of the song in the documentary. And I was like, okay, cool. So we met. It turns out it's in this document, a really well done documentary for a church in Louisville, Kentucky, which is near where I grew up in Lexington. And uh, it's for this documentary about a church trying to raise money in an inner city. And they didn't use the words. They just used the track, but it fits perfectly in this documentary behind this person talking for whatever reason. I never would have expected. And if you saw the video, the documentary, you would like, oh, I wouldn't have expected that tune for them to use. But it really works for the use behind this person talking and her story, which is very passionate. And, and even though the song was for a wedding and it was very okay. smarmy and stuff, for this use, it also worked. It was very, <laughs> you know, uh, emotional and it worked behind her vocal. So you just never know. Yeah. You know? How beautiful is that? It's very cool. That's great. Well, and then also you've been doing your original stuff, but lately you've been recording sonatas and classical music. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. The use of classical music on these stock libraries has really jumped in the last few years as well. It really has. I've gotten 
many things accepted to libraries, both on the stock side and the SIG side. I did a whole Piano Sonatas album just for one of my libraries that's coming coming out here soon. And uh, then I did another piano sonatas, a bunch of piano sonatas and different classical pieces I've done for my stock libraries too. And they've sold. And one of them, I've had them signed to lots of different kinds of libraries. So I even had a pitch recently for a television show using one of those classical sonatas. So it's, it's really cool that these things, you know, and that's one thing that people don't realize, your listeners may not even realize, but you can take public domain songs all mm-hmm. day long, make versions of them and pitch them to the libraries and record them and put them on Spotify. You know, I think most people think, oh, well, I, unless I create something, I'm going to have to pay some kind of royalties. And that's mostly true, although uh, there's another library called Crucial Music that is non-exclusive, but they pitch to television and film. And they now have a uh, covers uh, way. They they will take care of the cover licensing. So you can submit your recorded covers that are unique to them, and they might sign them, and they've signed several of mine. A BG song, Staying Alive version, jazzy version I did of that, and then a, a kind of solo piano version I did of a Genesis song. Really? And, and so uh, they're both signed even though they were covers. So covers, public domain songs, uh, originals, all three can be licensed. That's pretty Sheet music too. You know, sheet you music can create, too. Huh? You can create sheet music, even cover. Uh, a lot of the sheet music companies love really creative covers and, uh, and arrangements of pop music to put on their site, okay. and then they basically pay the rights holders and then pay you a piece of the of the sale. Yeah, so. like musicnotes.com, things yeah. like those. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, because there's a demand for that. People want to play Absolutely. things that they hear. One thing I'm not sure about, how is sync licensing, if we're talking about films and television, how is that different from a producer or a director calling a composer and saying, here is my film, I want you to score this? Can you explain the difference between those two things? Yeah, uh, most of the time when stuff is used in a TV show or a movie that is what we would call sync music, it's it's likely not what they're hiring a score guy to do. Mm-hmm. Um it's usually think of a lifetime movie and the girl goes back to her old hometown and this song comes on for the montage where they're laughing and they're falling in love and all this stuff is happening. And it's some kind of pop song that's going on behind the song behind the movie. That's not something the score guy does. That's something that the music supervisor, there's a person called a music supervisor who works for these shows and films and their job is to go out and find songs that would fit the scene and clear them, which means make sure the rights are all cool and they know who the songwriters are and they know who to pay and all that kind of stuff. And so they're the ones who pick the Taylor Swift song that goes behind that scene, or if they don't have the money, the Eric Copeland song that fits behind that scene because they don't have enough money to pay for the Taylor Swift song, which is going to cost them $50,000 to use for that use. Mm -hmm. And they only have a $30,000 budget or they only have a $10,000 budget or whatever. And so they know they can go to a library and get a song for $2,000 versus $20,000 or whatever. Mm -hmm. So if they can't get the Rolling Stones song, they'll go find a a sound-alike from some indie artist or from a library that has the same personality, has the same kind of feel and they will use that song instead. The score stuff, I mean, every once in a while a film, they, they're they not paying a person to score the film, and they mm-hmm. might just need some incidental music or some some uh, instrumental music from time to time in the, in the film, and they will use 
stuff they find at sync libraries, or they will know somebody that uh, has some some good stuff. But most of the time, it's it's not the score. Right. It's the incidental music. It's it's the fun music that's going on. It's the jukebox that's playing over in the background that needs to sound like an old Jimmy Buffett song, but it's not a Jimmy Buffett song. So they'll go to a library and look for Jimmy. Bu- I'm actually working on three Jimmy Buffett type songs for a library right now. And they will find that song and it'll be playing in the background. It's some nondescript Jimmy Buffett-y sound and song about beach and beer and they don't care because it's beh- it's behind the scene. It's it's not it's while the people are talking, and it's not right. the main song of the of the show. So that kind of thing is is what you're used in. But a lot of the best example though would be in a in a TV show behind a scene or in a montage or something like that. And you see these songs being used uh, recently on Stranger Things. They used a song by Kate Bush called Running Up That Hill, which is an old hit of hers from Mm -hmm. the 80s, maybe. Uh, Certainly from the 80s, because that show is based in the 80s. And it was a huge revival for her as an artist. I know. I've heard it everywhere now. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Also, um, in in Grey's Anatomy, back in like season two or three, there was a song by an artist called Imogen Heap, who I'm a big fan of. Mm -hmm. But it was featured in in a Grey's Anatomy episode, and people went crazy. Who is this person? Who is this person? And it became a big part of her growth as an artist early on. So it can totally be a, a star turn for artists, and especially independent artists and or artists you don't know of or haven't heard of in a while, and you go back and say, oh, I love that song by Queen. I didn't know they did that. And it reinvigorates their whole catalog. So, Or it brings an indie artist to light that nobody ever knew of, and then suddenly they become a huge thing. So So let's talk a little bit about the payment that you were talking about. There's there's different ways that someone gets paid through syncing their music. Can you Mm -hmm. explain them? Okay. Let's start with television. Sure. If you, uh, if a television show decides to go find a show, a song for a montage, and they, they go to a library and they um, decide to use that song, it could happen in a couple different ways. There's two different types of income. There's what we call the sync income, which is the upfront payment the li- the show would pay the library for that to use that song. But there's also a second royalty that happens called performance royalty, like you get when you stuff is played on the radio through, and you get that through something called a PRO performance rights organization like BMI or ASCAP here in the mm-hmm. States, or there's different ones around you know, the world, then the show files that, they file what's called a cue sheet, and they say, we use this song for a minute and 58 seconds or something like that. And they send that off to the companies like BMI or ASCAP that they have to pay to use that song. So they have to pay kind of an upfront fee and they have to pay a back-end fee. Now, some television shows, especially reality shows and things like that, may not pay the upfront fee um, just because. Um, and, and libraries are fine sometimes with that because they want all, all the uses they can get. Mm-hmm. And they and the library, who's the publisher, is in it for 50% as the publisher and the writer gets 50%. And so we share that. And so um, what happens is a show in Germany used my one of my songs for a bachelor type of show. It's, called, it's very funny. It's called Bauer Sucht. Fraulein or something like that. Frau, Bauer Sucht Frau. And it's it's about farmers looking for wives. 
And so it's basically The Bachelor, except The Bachelor is a farmer. And if you think that's funny, there's a Fox show coming along called uh, I know, Farmer's Sick Wives. Yeah. <laughs> so America is now pulling that show in. It's been a 20-year show like The Bachelor in Germany. Really? And uh, so, and it's really cool. Again, my stuff is used. This song called I Keep Falling in Love with You keeps being used on this one scene with this one couple, you know, that lasts through the whole show. So that show pays an upfront to the library or, or not, but still they file a cue sheet that says, we played this song for this many minutes. They send that off. It eventually gets back to BMI, which I'm a member of, and BMI figures out how much the song is worth and how much that play is worth, and they pay 50% to me, to my BMI account, and 50% to the publisher's BMI account. And now that whole process can take a year mm. uh, from the minute they air it to you getting something on your statement. And we only get that statement every quarter. You know, so um, the things I've gotten paid for recently have been Christmas stuff from 2021. So uh, in November, I got money from December of 2021 Christmas wow. uh, songs that were played. And they were, by the way, they were classical pieces. So public domain classical pieces that I got paid for. So uh, that's how long it takes in the back end. And, and the, uh, the quote unquote front end, uh, I just got some sync payments after two years with some of these libraries for the upfront fees I'm wow. getting two years later. So it's a long game in sync licensing because it just takes the TV shows have to file. BMI and ASCAP are notorious for taking nine months to process all the payments and all that stuff. Right. So, and, and who knows when they get it from the show and all that kind of stuff. If the, and the cue sheets have to be filed correctly. So it is a long game of income on that. Uh, there are some libraries that pay up front for f songs against your royalty. It's very much like a, an advance that you get in a record deal. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that doesn't happen that often. They don't have to do that, and so they don't. And so they just take your songs, and then they try to get uses, and uh, and then you get paid later down the road. Uh, and that's television. Mm -hmm. um, film and advertising pretty much pay up front because there's not always a lot of – in the States, films don't have to pay um, – performance royalties. They do around the world, but they don't in the States. Mm -hmm. So it's usually an upfront fee and the, the movie will pay $10,000 to use your song in their movie. And it's an upfront fee that they pay to, let's say it's with a library. Um, they'll pay to the library. And by the way, you can do sync licensing without a library. You can do it directly with the music supervisor, but that's a little bit harder to to get, you know, one song yeah. to one's music supervisor, the minute they need it, that's, that's, you have to have a relationship with a lot of music supervisors to work that way. And I know people who do, right. but uh, I, I, I work with libraries just because I think it's a, it's easier to catch more fish with a big uh, library like that, that people go search. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and then commercials work pretty much the same way upfront payments. I had a commercial possibility last year with another co-writer of mine and this was uh, a song that we had had accepted by a library, but it hadn't been put in the library yet. And a company came along and wanted to use that song for their company song. And they were not a nationwide company. They were a regional company. But they, we had uh, negotiated a, a price of about $30,000 for the buyout use of that song. In other words, they get to use it for all time. They wouldn't take ownership of the copyright necessarily, but they would be the only people who could use it, be very exclusive to them. 
uh, for this price. That did not happen for whatever reason, but I have worked in music for companies, for car dealerships and different things, and it regularly is four or $5,000 for a 60-second spot for, for advertising. So advertising and commercials and is very lucrative, mm-hmm. and you want to get involved in that. Um, I always tell people that television can pay anywhere from $750 for use on a show to $30,000 for use on a show. Film could pay anywhere from $5,000 for a use to $50,000 for a use. But marketing, commercials can pay, a good Apple commercial would could pay over six figures. And so there are gigantic possibilities for income from sync licensing. Mm-hmm. Now that's sync. Stock pays a little different, different. You want me to go into that next? Sure. Yeah, let's go ahead. So stock music is simpler. You basically put stuff in the library and whatever it sells, you split with the library, whatever the split is. Yeah. And they usually pay in 30 days. They usually pay by the 15th of next month if you have so much that you've made in sales on those stock libraries. So that's what I would call a sync license. I mean, a sync payment kind of upfront payment you mm-hmm. get once they sell it, you just split whatever is there. And and those aren't necessarily 50-50 deals. Sometimes they're more 65-35 deals where we're getting 35% as, uh-huh. as the composer and the library's getting 70, uh, 65%. But that stuff is usually paid the next month. So you, it's not as long a wait for that music. And then there is a back end to stock licensing called Content ID. Since most of the stuff that is downloaded from stock libraries is used on websites or or specifically YouTube videos, Content ID is basically the PRO of, of YouTube. They, they listen to everything that's being uh, played there, as you know, and they pay the rights holders of the music that is being played on the videos, unless it's been whitelisted or something and, and the person can get out of that claim. But Content ID was my second most highest income last year from stock music. Is that right? So it is a real deal. And I use a company that tracks that and pays. And so that's very wow. cool. So it's nice to have a combination of both the sync and the stock. Yeah, I think so. I It is for me as a composer because not everything I write fits in the sync world. It doesn't right. fit a TV show or a movie, but it, it could have some odd use like for a documentary down the road or for uh, somebody's creepy spider video or for somebody's uh, ping pong, emotional ping pong video, which are all things that I have. Oh, I know. I know all about the ping pong videos. My son loves those. Loves them. <laughs> so I just, I, I'm getting ready to do a, a video about where my music is used. And it's really cool to see all these uses and you wouldn't expect these, these uses. So, right. Yeah. Now it seems the way you were talking there, it seems to be quite complicated and we absolutely don't have time to go through everything that you've um, been talking about, but you have actually written the book about this and you have lots of resources. So if someone's listening to this and they really think, oh, wow, this is something that is interesting to me, how can they find you and find out more about the nitty gritty? Yeah. Um, I've written ebooks on both sync licensing and stock licensing and how to get involved with them and my journey on both of them and what happened with me. My whole channel is all about what is happening with me in reality and not what could happen necessarily. Mm -hmm. I mean, a little bit of what could happen, but um, they can just go to makemusicincome.com and that is the website for everything. And on YouTube, it's just Make Music Income. And on Instagram, it's Make Music Income. It's Make Music Income everywhere, but they can just go to makemusicincome.com and they'll see the different eBooks that are there, including the newest one called Getting In Sync. They're very inexpensive. And just uh, my 
I'm working on courses for everything, but uh, these two are the the hot button topics for sure. Sync licensing and stock music licensing because they're passive. You do them, you send them off to the library, and then there's no more work. It's not like doing gigs all the time to make uh, money down the road from it. You just sit and wait. It's like fishing. So um, it's very interesting to people. Well, yeah, especially, you know, just coming through the pandemic when a lot of our gig income has dried up, having these other types of passive income is really that's a really important thing for a professional musician. And that's when they kind of took off is during the pandemic and stuff. Everybody was stuck at home and they were looking for musical things they could do. And yeah. sync licensing and stock music were just, wow, I can make money sitting here in my pajamas making music and send it off to these libraries. Sign me up. <laughs> and I was one of those people, although I was already really focused on uh, sync licensing long before the pandemic hit. But uh, it certainly was something we could keep doing for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you're also a teacher. And like you said, you have all these courses to help other mm -hmm. other musicians. What are some mistakes that you see that beginning musicians just getting into this type of licensing make that kind of hinder them from really progressing? The biggest thing that people make, and, and I don't have to tell this to the people who are watching this podcast or you, is that most people quit. Most people just don't stay with music long enough to uh, become either good at it or make income from it because they just get discouraged. They move on to another hobby. They uh, don't feel that they are good enough. They have imposter syndrome. They just don't think that they could do this like someone else could do this. And the people who succeed don't do that. The people who succeed stay in this like you've done, like I've done, like everybody I know in music has done. They have stayed in music. They didn't start a degree in it and then quit and go start a degree in, in something else. Uh, they they stayed in music because there are stories, and I've had clients through the years, it's the same story over and over again. I did music when I was young, but then I started a family or I got a job and I just got into something else and I, I had to give music up for a while or I just went, well, they didn't have to give music up, but they did. And uh, I think that's the biggest issue with any, really anything you do, but especially a craft, if you mm -hmm. don't stay on that craft, if you don't become a seasoned craftsman at your craft, then, you know, you're not going to have success. I've seen people who weren't any more talented than anybody else, but they stuck at it and they worked as hard as they could and became very talented and became very good at what they did. Artists, songwriters, anything in music, players, I've seen people become great. Um just depending on their work ethic and how hard they stuck with it. And that's, to me, that's the ultimate secret. I am still here because I'm still here. I still get music jobs because I still, people call me up and go, Eric, you still do music? And I say, yep. And they said, well, here's $500. And so, you know, that is a, a secret of mine that I've had for a long time. People would just call me up and say, do you still do music? I'd say, yep. Well, I still have a song I want you to do. So that's just, to me, that's the ultimate secret. Yeah. And probably the other secret I would say, and I've said this before on other shows, is that don't be afraid to start your own thing when um, you don't know if you have what it takes for a specific publisher. After about five years of banging my head up against the wall, driving back and forth to Nashville, trying to get some, a publisher to listen to my genius, I just decided to make my own business and do my own thing in a similar way that I started my YouTube channel. I just had something to say that was my own. And so I did it and I started my own thing. 
And now it is what it is, whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But, um, you know, you just say, hey, listen, I need to start this thing. And I can't just keep waiting on for someone else to come to me and say, oh, you need to start it. Or we want to sponsor you to start it. Or we want to sign you, kid, because, you know, you're a big star. You've just got to do your own thing. And we live in a world now that you couldn't do this, what we can do. You couldn't do this podcast 20 years ago. Um, you would have to have done it on AOL or something like that, or you would have you would have had to make CDs and DVDs and send them around to everybody. Right. We have this amazing technology now that we can do all these things, and everyone needs to take advantage of it in order to make more music income and start their own thing. And I, th I think most people are just afraid to do that. Yeah, there's an aspect of of risk in there, but the rewards are are spectacular. Yeah, they really absolutely. are. Well, I really appreciate you coming and. Okay kind of wetting our whistle, letting us dip our toes in. The world of sync licensing is very deep. And so if this is interesting to anybody, please, please, I really encourage them to look at all of your content that make music income. There is a lot. I have learned quite a bit from it. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. And I, I think I've only scratched the surface. So um, I highly recommend that to everybody. So Eric Copeland, thank you so much for being here. I, I, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in my conversation with composer and producer Eric Copeland. If you want to learn more about the world of licensing, whether it be through sync music or stock music, make sure to take advantage of all of the information Eric provides on his website, YouTube channel, and podcast, all entitled Make Music Income. You can also find his ebooks, Getting in Sync and The Stock Market where, why, and how to submit your music to stock music licensing on his website, makemusicincome.com. I will have links to everything we've talked about today on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. And I'll also have links to ASCAP and BMI, the two largest performing rights organizations in the U.S. Even if you aren't a member of ASCAP or BMI, these two sites have an overwhelming amount of information all about licensing, copyrights, and general career advice. In today's episode, you've heard Go Out and Find Her and On the Beach, both composed and produced by Eric Copeland. They were shared here with permission, so our many thanks to Eric for letting us share his music with you today. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was produced by Russ Wilkes and was hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith. Now, we appreciate the nice notes and messages we have been getting from you, and we read every single one of them. Thank you for sending them along to us. If you'd like to reach out to us with suggestions, questions, or just to say hi, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook, or you can email us at infofrostedlens.com. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.